I had a mentor ask me, what do you want to do? And I would say for anybody who's listening, just ask yourself that question. If you're looking for a new role or if you're looking for your next professional challenge, ask yourself, what do I want to do? It sounds like the easiest question in the world, but I was dumbfounded. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the cloud as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello and welcome everyone to another fine episode of Altitude. Phenomenal show for you today. Uh, we are going to talk about protecting and nurturing the SA Brain Trust in cloud providers. And to help me with that today, I have my friend and former colleague and longtime just awesome ally, Matt Henry, who is, Matt, help me with your title. You're now a uh, sales leader of the Greenfield SA team. Is that correct? So it would be senior leader that I have a counterpart in the sales organization. But yes, the senior leader within the SA organization within Greenfield West at AWS. That is awesome. And just so folks know a little back history, Matt Henry is the reason I'm a black belt, or at least <laughs> started as a black belt. I am now, of course, at Aviatrix doing my thing here. But I remember it was Honeywell. I was working in the infrastructure side at that time, right? Doing architecture of load balancing. And I was immersed in the guts of the Azure load balancer and... You brought me on a call with Honeywell to help explain the platform to them and to help them do some architecture stuff. And then I kind of chased you around for a while and said, hey, hey man, how about this GBB gig? And you were kind <laughs> enough to introduce me to Todd Hammer and yeah, we just kind of kicked it off from there. So you really were the catalyst to my career. So thanks. This is one of those things, right, where uh, you and I got along super well from the start and you just see things and it's like, why aren't they on this team? And it made sense to make that connection. You took it from there, man. Thank you. So obviously, Matt used to work at Azure in a CSA role. Prior to that, he was at AWS. And then after Azure, he returned home to AWS as a super elite SA, but now as an SA leader, someone who is now a people person. So that is what we were going to talk about today. Brain trust of whatever acronym you want to use respective to your, your different cloud provider or segment of the industry. Sometimes they're called solution architects, cloud solution architects, SEs, the technical selling folks and technical experts who interact with customers. A very critical part of the industry because I feel that these individuals are really responsible for completing that sales cycle insofar as if the technology doesn't work, if the fundamental architecture isn't sound, right, the whole thing falls apart. It's one thing and a very important thing to have the business relationships and the partner relationships and all those critical things that the AEs do. But when it really comes down to brass tacks, you know, the SAs are where, where it all happens. And my understanding is that AWS is a very SA-led sales team, right? I mean, you put a lot of emphasis on the technical merit of the solution. So a lot of the selling kind of falls, uh, naturally falls upon the SA. Is that true? It's all about the builders. There's no question about that. Yeah. And I think there's, a, there's an awesome responsibility attached to what you just said. That is, if the solution doesn't work, it's the SA's responsibility to step in and say, no, this, this is not the best thing for the customer. This is not going to work. 
And I think that that's one of the ways that essays quickly earn trust. Yeah, absolutely. That, that trust component, I agree, is really the role of the essay because it, it tends to be at the end of the day, engineer to engineer, architect to architect relationship that really solidifies the deal and the solution, right? Meaning, as you said, it's the efficacy of it. Does it really work? Does it solve the business outcome in this, you know, important role and important space where the sausage is really being made? Do you feel that we have a big enough talent pool to satisfy the growth of cloud? Are there enough people in this industry to really keep the machine humming? Or are we at a place where, you know, essays are, are a little harder to find and, and hire? What are your thoughts? So the, the last thing you said, I would say it, it feels to me like essays are a little bit harder to, to find and hire a little bit. Uh, I'm not saying that in a, a data-backed way. It's just kind of my personal opinion. But I think the way I would respond here is going back to a mentor that I had early on uh, and all the way through my, my tenure with Azure, I was looking to potentially change organizations and maybe get a little bit away from tech and try some new things, do some program management type work. And I had a mentor ask me, what do you want to do? And I would say for anybody who's listening to this right now, just ask yourself that question. If you're looking for a new role or if you're looking for your next professional challenge, ask yourself, what do I want to do? It sounds like the easiest question in the world, but I was dumbfounded. When, when I was asked this question, I felt like I was going 80 miles an hour on the highway and then it just hit the brakes in my head because I couldn't answer the question point blank. I think it's a question everybody needs to be prepared for. And I think it's something everybody should be introspective about when they are in their own time. But the, getting back to the mainline question here, I think there are enough talented individuals around us, in our society, around the world to do these roles. But I think there's a lot of people who are not in the right places. We've got some people who maybe are, are forcing their their foot into a size four when they need a size eight and it's not quite working on the architect front. But I think we've got people in maybe adjacent industries, other roles, or maybe things that are just completely far out. Uh, if you have somebody who's really good at conceptual art, as an example, maybe they've got a mind for architecture and they'd really appreciate putting their mind toward that work. So I think really what's going on in my mind uh, is that a lot of people struggle to answer what they really want to do. And I think that there are enough people out there. Uh, I'd like to see more of them, certainly. But I think that this is a question more people need to answer for themselves. And I think if they did, we'd probably have this thing turned around a little bit more. You know, I'm going to predict your answer to this question, but how important is mentorship to this whole oh. process? <laughs> so I, I actually, in, in big tech, I would break that one down a little bit. So First okay. of all, the answer is it's, it's utmost important. It's priority zero, but you need to break down. You need to have mentors, you need to have coaches and you need to have sponsors, right? So a sponsor may not sit on the phone with you and, and talk about a particular issue at work or how you could have handled something a little bit better, but a sponsor is someone that is aware of your desires, your capabilities. And they want to stand behind you. They are vouching for you and your skill set. And they want to see you succeed. And they're willing to stand behind you to get you there. Uh, whereas mentorship, I, I would say you formalize the relationship. And it's best, I think, when there are some long-term goals. But it can be a little bit off the hip and informal and over an indeterminate uh, period of time. Coaching 
sometimes you just need to tell somebody uh, or they need to hear is a better way to say it. Uh, they need to just hear something and it's like, oh yeah, why, why did I do that on, on this or that call? Uh, I could have done that a better way. You know, here's an interesting question that just came to my mind because I, I completely agree with you. Of course, I, you know, I come from this DNA, you come from this DNA, and we both had really profound, important mentors, several of them in our, our career to help us out. It has COVID and the whole virtual work environment made mentorship more difficult in our space? Or are we getting the necessary done using tools like Zoom and other virtual chat clients? I had both virtual mentorship and in-person mentorship, so it was complimentary. But, you know, is AWS calling everyone back to the office or is, is the, the, the SA role still very virtual there? Return to office is definitely a thing. And there's, uh, yes. there's certainly a lot of opinions about it, but Jassy always has the last word, right? So uh, RTO is happening. You're seeing a lot of people crashing back into this face-to-face -face thing after several years of this virtual thing. And old habits die hard, right? I think change is always difficult for people. And what's funny in this case is a lot of people are getting used to things that they used to be used to. But there's also a new part of the workforce that never had that experience. And I think they value greatly from the experience of some of the folks who've They've been in the office thing, they've been through the COVID thing, and now everybody seems to be on that trend back. Me personally, I'm a fan of, you know, whatever works for most people, as long as customers are really being taken care of. I think that for the folks who've been through this, it's about picking up what you used to do and, and know. And for the new folks, it's about building those new memories. And I think relying a lot on people who used to do this. It's not to say that there shouldn't be some new trends in this or that it shouldn't be pursued a different way. Every generation kind of has their own way of doing things, right? And I think that that's great. The classic mentorship in person, in my opinion, that's where I get the most. Face-to-face, -face, I'm reading some sensory inputs that I wouldn't get over this. Maybe that's not the case for somebody who's 20 years younger than I am. Uh, I've got to make space for that. I think in-person just can't be matched. I think there's things you can read and see and learn that you wouldn't get over video. But I think people got very good over video during those years. And, I, you know, I think we've gotten by on it pretty well. Yeah, I completely agree. Meaning that the virtual thing can work and you have to have the right personality and the right skill set to be a good virtual mentor. Not everyone's cut out for it, but there are people that really snap to that medium and that formula, it can make it work. However, the chemistry and the energy of being physically with a group of people and the flow of information. And like you said, it's just different when you're in person in a mentorship capacity. You can cover a lot of ground more quickly and the conversation is a lot more natural. Seems like ideas flow more easily when people are in front of a whiteboard or over a pizza. A funny story I have is <laughs> The way I really learned networking was when I was at F5, I was a support engineer. All of my teammates knew that I was one of the, the young bucks. I really didn't have a lot of skills or experience in this field yet. And I was just super stressed out all the time because I didn't know what my customers were asking me. And I would just be there on my desk with my hands <laughs> in my hands. Like, I don't get this. I don't get this. Uh, a couple of my uh, teammates really took me under their wing and said, okay, we're, we got to sort this out, man, because you're not going to last here. So we would take these two hour lunches and alcohol may or may not oh. have been involved, oh. but we would sit there over beverages and food and we would tear apart every case that we were working on as a team. 
And it were those informal team-led training sessions that really made a huge impact and a difference for me. It's just, I think, a testimony to the strength of, of in-person mentorship. Agree. Let's talk a little bit about the skill sets that we're seeing in the industry and how that's trending. Yeah. So what kind of skill sets are you seeing first in your team and your broader organization? And do you think it's the, the right kind of skill sets for the new hires? Or do you think they're kind of coming in cold and, you know, the industry might need to do a little bit more to kind of get these people ready for the job? This is an interesting topic because it's like college. So I feel like one of the things in college, and not everybody needs to go to college, I'm not making that point, but what I'm saying is for me, that was one of the places I learned how to learn. And I think for some people, maybe their their first tech job is a place where they learn how to learn. The technical piece is something that I think anybody can build upon based on what their customers need. What, what does the customer actually need here? Uh, if, you, if you walk in just because you're an infrastructure person and you have a customer that wants to do AIML and you knew we weren't going to stay away from that topic for very long, I still believe that that infrastructure person could get up to speed. Uh, the expression we used at Microsoft a lot of the time was uh, one white paper ahead of the customer. In, in this day and age, there's so much to know. There's so many services. There are so many types of questions. That's about as good as it gets in most cases. So I think all architects, all technical folks should come in with the ability to learn. So it's not about your velocity. It's about your acceleration. How quickly can you pivot? How quickly can you acquire new skills? How quickly can you help your customer be successful based on their business outcomes that they need? Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's uh, fixed. I think it's very volatile. The, the skill sets are changing day to day. It is really cool and interesting to hear you say that. I just did a recent podcast with a CSA who works at Aviatrix, super cool guy, Nick Davatashvili. Wow. But we got on this topic of metacognition, learning about learning, mm -hmm. about being critical for CSAs. And you've just you know, back that up completely. And I agree, it's not really about your specific skill set coming into the role, but your appetite for embracing change. Yeah, and you're right, the skill set is just bouncing all over the place. So there's not like one ideal blueprint for an essay. Some people come from infrastructure, some people come from app and server, some database, some from all kinds of places. So. Well, and I would say this, it's the why, the what, and the how, right? So. The why is something everybody should be able to answer anytime they're about to do anything. As a, as a company, why are we doing this? Why are we building this workload? Why are we migrating this? You should be able to answer that. The what, I think, is where this industry is focused for a long time. What are we doing? What, what is this workload? What, what, what is the place it's, gonna, it's destined to be look like? But now with things like DevOps, we're seeing a lot more the process, the how, we're seeing the importance of those things. People, process, and technology, right? So they're all critical for a successful enterprise. Why? You always got to start with the why, right? The what, I think, is table stakes. Everybody's brain is going to go there. But the how is changing. Uh, that's such a good point. I can see some people coming in as an essay that had years of enterprise experience on the infrastructure side or security side or something. And now that the how is changing, we are entering much more of an agile world, DevOps-driven, Terraform-driven, that some of these 
folks that don't have that appetite for quick learning and quick skill set absorption could be feeling left out in the cold or stressed out, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a programmer, but you do have to be a good coder. And there's a difference, and you and I know that difference, and I think most of our listeners do, but you know, you don't have to be able to create novel solutions from scratch <laughs> using a computer language, but you have to have a functional knowledge of, of how programming kind of works. Mm. There's a lot of churn in our segment of the industry. You see a lot of people bouncing around between different cloud service providers or different other partners or players in the industry. Maybe they go to a GSI. So it feels a, a bit kind of like a shell game, right? What is driving the churn? Is it people think the grass is greener on the other side? Is it they're looking to expand their skill set and they're not getting the kind of mentorship and, or training they want at their particular place? Uh, is it culture? What would you put as the most valuable thing to kind of retain and instill loyalty in essays? I think there's a generational aspect again to what's going on here. Uh, and I don't think the answer is general. I don't think there's one answer I could give here for, that would apply in every case. I think for those, maybe more from my generation, it's chasing some of those good times. It's finding security, finding a good ratio of uh, what am I getting out of this versus what is, is the company or my customers getting out of this. But I can't really speak for some of the, the, the younger folks. But I think that culture you mentioned plays a really big part of this. Are in a culture that you identify with professionally, I think it reduces a lot of noise and it reduces a lot of friction. And when people feel like they are on skates and they're move, they can move as fast as they can push their legs, there's something really liberating about that and, and just valuable. But if they feel like they've got to... Um, do something before every stride uh, and their skates are super dull, that culture doesn't work for them. I think AWS, Amazon at, at large has a very, very strong culture based on the leadership principles. Everything really does come from there. And I think what having that strong culture gets you is one of the places where you get the most friction is when there's not an answer to a question that gets asked and it goes through all of the normal processes. And then there you are, you have nothing to address the question with. Culture is the last step. It's the catch-all. It's the base case of a recursive function. You, you can't go any further than that. The culture will dictate how you will answer the question if no one else has. How much do you feel that culture in the essay rank and industry is, is really top-down driven versus more instilled closer to the ground by people such as yourself that are managing and curating these teams day to day? Is it, is it a mix? Kind of a, a difficult question to ask without stepping on too many toes, but every large enterprise company at some level is a rank and file company. And there is an overarching culture, which comes straight from the top and based on the C-level players and how they want the company to look and feel. But then there's a more finer grained kind of closer to home culture that I think the directors and managers are responsible for. So in your experience, this could be at AWS or just in the industry as a whole, what role do you think the, the directors and managers play in, in setting that culture? I think in most of my career in cloud, and I, I've been a couple places and I've seen a lot of SAs and I've seen a lot of managers, where it is most successful is where there is a strong culture, one that the architects identify with. Because when that is the case, I have seen SAs hold to their culture themselves. They don't need a whole lot of help. 
from leadership, from their managers, from anyone else to know what good looks like, right? I feel like this is one of those really intangible things about people. We often can just step into a situation. Uh, somebody who's never seen American football before could watch a game and know what good looks like for a football player. Same for hockey, same for golf. It's just one of those inherent things we can't really explain. And I think when you step into an organization, it doesn't take long before you figure out who is the keeper of our culture here, who is really just demonstrating mm. what leadership looks like here. And frankly, I've tried in my career to be one of those people as an architect myself. As a leader, I'm going to learn a lot more about this process, but I think essays often hold themselves to the highest standard. What does good culture look like for you? I know, like you said, it's intangible. So it is hard to kind of both quantify and qualify. But if you were trying to put it into words, what would a good, successful, healthy culture for essays look and feel like? Ambiguity has a way of slowing things down, maybe scaring some folks, making it unclear what to do. And even when you have a strong culture, ambiguity can throw things all over the place. So making sure you have a strongly instilled culture where if ambiguity is an input in at least 99%, hopefully 100% of the cases, your culture has a way to suss out what good would look like, at least via interpretation, because I feel like that's where we end up a lot of the time. Sometimes that's the best you can do. All right. Final question, Matt. Mm -hmm. Thanks for tolerating all of my, you know, I'm loving crazy, it. stilted, esoteric. All right. I'm throwing you all the tough ones, man. You're killing it. Based on all of your tenure and experience, you've been on both sides of the fence. You know, you've been a decorated essay for many years and now you're an effective leader. I'm sure your your team loves you because I just know you as a person and as a professional. And I, I just think they're incredibly fortunate to have you. But what do you think differentiates a good manager from a great one? I love this question. I hope I you know, finish my career out and say, I, I stayed on the right side of this question. I think one of the, the first things is you have to shift that mindset that it's, it's not about me. It's, it's not about my goals. My customer now is my team. So it's about, it's about keeping them forefront in everything that we do. Am I enabling them? Am I reducing noise, reducing the friction we talked about? Uh, there's a there's another thing about leadership that's really interesting in that it, it tends to, to stand by itself. There's a great quote by Sheryl Sandberg that I just, I love. Leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure that impact lasts in your absence. To me, what that means is you're staying ahead of things, you're seeing around corners, you're doing it for your team, and you're helping them get rid of ambiguity, put some processes in place to maybe make the not so much fun things go by more quickly so that they can have more time for the things that really get the, the gears turning in their heads. I think that that's, that's where you want to be. And also, if you talk about a good leader, a good or maybe a not so great leader, you're going to talk about they are sympathetic. I think a great leader is always going to be empathetic. I think a so-so leader is going to be aware. I think that a great leader is going to be perceptive. I think that a so-so is going to be inquisitive, but I think a great leader is going to be curious. And here comes a big one. I think a so-so leader is going to be authoritarian. A great leader is going to be authoritative, making sure that there are bounds in place, reasonable expectations, clearly communicated. Everybody's on board. They know what happens if they're here. They know what happens if they're there. 
And the last thing, this is one that's really, I don't think anybody can teach this one. A so-so leader will be cautious. A great leader will be prescient. And what I mean, I, I'm a big Dune fan. So I, I think Paul Atreides about this. Prescience, I think for some people would be an absolute curse. But as a leader, it's a gift. Just like feedback is a gift, right? If you can see what your people need three steps ahead, four steps ahead, and give that to them. It's the, the Wayne Gretzky, go to where the puck is going to be, not where it is right now. That's a great leader. If you are trying to keep somebody out of uh, harm's way today, yesterday, being reactionary, those things, that's not really seeing ahead for your people. Hard thing to teach. Matt, incredible, super wise words, man. Thank you for sharing, coming on the episode. It's been delightful to have you. And uh, best of luck in the new role, man. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much.